Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. John, John chapter 10 from verse 22 through 30, and I'll be reading from the ESV version of the Bible. At that time, the, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. <clears throat> it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. <clears throat> Amen. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Well, brothers and sisters and friends, my intention for the last two weeks here in the 10th chapter of the Gospel according to John was for us to begin a new section, section that begins in verse 22 and ends essentially in verse 30. That little section that is before you, my intention was for us in that two-week period to, to unpack those truths and for my sermons to go across two weeks and cover those verses but it didn't take much preparation before I realized that I was rather ambitious. The Lord knows how to humble his people, and this is one way. It's not the first time I realize my intentions way surpass my ability to accomplish them. And this is one of those cases. So my intention this evening is to slow down. The truths that are before us in these verses are incredibly rich. And so it would be prudent for us to slow down as we wade the deep waters of the wonderful truths that are found in the words of our Lord, even in these nine verses that are before us. So no, my new revised intention is not to go through to verse 30, but by his grace, I want to begin where we end off last week and continue through. And my, my intention is to get us to the end of verse twenty. Seven, if he allows. From there, we'll simply work through the text as the Lord wills in future Lord's days. And one day, if he wills and extends our days, we will get through the chapter and maybe even the book if we live long enough. Now, brothers and sisters, if your memory serves you well, you may remember last week I said that verse 22 in John chapter 10 begins a, a new section in the, in the chapter, a brand, a brand new section had begun. A few months had passed since what has taken place in the first 21 verses, those verses that we have come to know as the Good Shepherd discourse, that Christ speaks to the, the people there. And the, the context was around about the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. It was in the autumn, so it was their September, our September, October, around that region. Now we're told it's winter. And winter is, is around about the, the, the November, December mark there in the Middle East. So a few months have passed, but essentially the theme, the theme, excuse me, of what Christ is, is speaking and what is expounding is still the same theme because the Good Shepherd theme is still on, on his mind. The only difference really is that it's no longer that the Jews are celebrating the Feast of Tabernacle or the Feast of Booths. But rather, they're celebrating a different festival, one we spoke about last week, the Feast of Dedication, or what the contemporary people would better know it as Hanukkah. It's still celebrated amongst the Jews even today. 
Celebration is in the air. There's a bliss, there's a sense, a smell of joy among the people of God, the people of Israel. Dancing and singing and playing of instruments, sacrificing to Yahweh in their commemoration of the deliverance that they as a people had enjoyed there in Jerusalem, which took place some two centuries earlier under the oppressive rule of the Seleucids. We we went through the, the history last week. You may remember, if not, the recording is up. Previously, but it's more so than just the deliverance that they were that they were celebrating or commemorating, it is, it is the reconsecration of the, the temple, the very place that they're in. We're told that the Lord is in the temple, walking alongside Solomon's colonnades. That's in the temple structure. And they're celebrating the, the reconsecration reconsecra- the of the temple or the rededication of the temple. Because previous to that, 200 years earlier, under the Seleucid rules, it was defiled by the then governing rulers. It was defiled, it was blasphemed. They committed um, uh, uh, sacrifices to pagan, idolatrous gods. And now, because the temple had been rededicated to the people of Israel, Israel, or Jerusalem, that Jerusalem was, was brought back, was taken back over from the, the evil rule, they're now celebrating in the temple space. So they're joyous in the fact that the temple is even still erect. And it isn't, it isn't Solomon's temple. We remember that. It is the second temple, the one that was built after the return of the exiles from Babylon. The fact that it still stands is a testimony to the goodness of God. Now, it's bigger and, and, and better than what Zerubbabel, what they, the people of Israel built, or the people of Judah built when they returned from exile, because King Herod, about 50 years earlier, had, had extended and beautified the temple. He had an affinity for architecture. And so apart, after going abroad and seeing the other temples to, to pagan gods, he couldn't have his own, his own temple in his own place to be inferior to those. So he, he extended the temple and made it even more beautiful than what it was. It was a humble temple when it was rebuilt after the exiles. You may remember the older men were weeping. But Christ will still have the theme of the good shepherd on his mind. And on his heart, even though a few months have passed by. The benefit of being his sheep, of being led by this good shepherd, are going to be expounded and reiterated in the words that are before us. The privileges that they enjoy to be his sheep, the the care, his protection, his security, and the life that he gives. Not just life, but life in its fullness. The abundant life. The eternal life that the shepherd gives will be reiterated once again in these verses. But before our Lord goes there, he'll address a very pertinent question on the hearts and on the minds of the Jews that are before him, a question that you and I, we, we examined last week, we, we considered last week, and you remember what it is. They were asking, Lord, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the one chosen and set by God, the servant of God, to redeem God's people? Now, it seems quite obvious that their objectives are sinister. They weren't well-intended or sincere. Because if it's simply a confirmation of Jesus' identity that they're looking for, if it's just simply to know whether he is the one who is sent by God, then he's given them that confirmation Not once and not twice, but we saw last week over and over again, multiple times, they had the opportunity to realize that he is indeed the one sent by the Father because he said so on multiple occasions. He said it both in his words and he said it both in his deeds. He made that clear in verses 25 and 26. But due to the the willful, unbelieving hearts of the religious establishment of the day, the Jews, as John calls them, they rejected them all. They rejected his claims, his words, and they rejected his, his works. And the reason for the rejection, beloved, is twofold. The, the first is rooted in themselves. The first is rooted in their own sinful nature. But the second is rooted in the eternal decree of God. 
The former must never be dismissed, although it is the latter that is emphasized in the text before us here in verse 26 and 27. But both truths run throughout this gospel, throughout the gospels, the New Testament. And in fact, these truths run throughout the Old Testament and the New, all of Scripture. That there is, that there is man's responsibility, man's willfulness to continue in sin, whilst at the same time God is sovereign over all things, even the salvation of his own. Even the salvation of his own. The true truths, they go hand, hand in hand. Sinful man is culpable for his sins. He's responsible for the manifestation of their sinful nature. No one else is to blame but the sinner himself for his own or her own unrighteousness. The ultimate reason for the rejection of the light, the ultimate reason for the rejection of the salvation of God, is found in the eternal decree of God. Now, having addressed the former, Christ, which is the willful unbelief, we've worked our way through the Gospel of John. We've seen how he's approached the unbelieving religious leaders of the day. He's addressed them over and over again. He now, in verses 25 and 26, addresses the latter, which is the eternal decree of God in election. It may not be clear, but I hope by the time we're done, it will be. The Jews want Jesus to speak plainly. (laughs) They want him to speak directly. And beloved, this is what they get when he opens his mouth next. But it's a massive indictment that maybe they weren't quite prepared for. 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works I do, my father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Faith or belief is in question here. You do not believe. And the reason for that, Jesus has already made it clear to his listeners, and he continues to make it clear, that unless they believe in who he is, then they will die in their sins. He said it over and over again. Unless he is believed upon, because he's the one who's sent by the Father for the redemption of sinful mankind. Salvation comes through no one else apart from Jesus Christ. So apart from faith in him, there cannot be salvation. No salvation apart from believing in Christ. There is no entry into the sheepfold of God, into the family of God unless you go through the door that is Christ. Only Christ is the good shepherd of the sheep of God. Only. And that salvation comes through faith. Through faith in Him. And there's all the plethora of the privileges that Jesus has already explained to the Jews and His listeners of of what, what great glory it is for those sheep who belong to this shepherd. And how he takes care of them and the benefits that come along with being sheep in the fold of this good shepherd. But those privileges, including spiritual life, the abundant life, Jesus is saying, looking at the eyes of his audience, they don't belong to you because you don't belong to me. You're not among my sheep. It's what he's saying here, that you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. All the words that he's spoken about eternal life, all the the words that he's reiterated over and again about him being the light of the world, He's looking at these men and he's saying, because you are not my sheep, because you don't believe, you don't belong to me. And those perks, those benefits don't belong to you. In other words, you don't have spiritual life. In other words, you think you're in the light, but in fact, you remain, you remain in the darkness. That's terrifying, is it not? But you know what's even more terrifying, I think? Because those words from the mouth of the Lord is not only, not only is he describing their current state, 
the current state of their soul. It is also saying, you don't have life. You're in the darkness. And that's where you will remain. That's where you will remain. There's a sense of finality to the words of our Lord in these verses. It's as though the gavel is coming down in judgment. You'll remain in that state and you'll need to endure the eternal wrath of God to come. The verdict is in. You see, there are many times in the Gospels where Jesus speaks to sinners. In fact, we, we have a great record throughout the, fourth, the four Gospels of the narratives of how Jesus interacted with sinners. And, and every time, Jesus is not one who beats around the book. He's not concerned with the glory that comes from men. He's concerned only with the glory that comes from God. And all that he did was pleasing to the Father 24-7. He pleased the Father. His food was to please the Father. So he said it as it is. He made sinners aware of their plight. He, he didn't beat around the bush. He, he told them where they're at, spiritually speaking, that they are under the judgment of God, that they're under the wrath of God, that apart from him, they will die in their sins. Jesus said it as it is. He told them about the peril that they would face apart from him. He illuminated the, the state of their own soul. He's direct. But quite often we find in the Gospels that there's a glimmer of hope. That after Jesus reveals the state of the heart of those who are listening, there's an invitation to turn in faith. There's an invitation to apprehend Christ the Savior. There's an invitation to repent of one's sins and to look to God through His Son in faith. And to receive Him and to enjoy the eternal life. You know what I mean? It's like when you haven't been feeling too good. The days pass and the weeks pass and you're not getting any better. So you decide to go and see a doctor. The doctor does some preliminary examinations upon you and decides because he's not, he's not omniscient. He, he decides to send you away and do some further testing, some bloods and some x-rays. And he does. Test results come back and, and he sits before them and he then discerns the results, calls you, and you come back into his office, and the news is not good. And as a doctor, he needs to share the truth with you. So he does. He doesn't beat around the bush. He tells it as it is. You are his patient, and you expect truth. And so he gives you the truth and tells you about the plight, whether it's cancer or, 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 or whatever sickness or a tumor, whatever it is, he tells you the truth. But he doesn't normally stay there. A doctor with good bedside manners would normally turn the mood around by saying, okay, this is the current state, but however, there are treatments, there, there are medicines, there are certain things we can do in the, you know, with the medical world that we live in that can help you, so don't be in despair, things will be okay. We're going to try some things, you and I, we're going to partner together and we're going we're to get through this. I'm not going to leave you there. There's a, there's a glimmer of hope. It's, it doesn't look good, but there is a glimmer of hope. And what we see for the most case when our Lord's dealing with the, the sinners in the Gospels, that's something similar. He gives them the bad news, but then he gives them the good news, the good news of the Gospel. The Gospel is the, the good news. And going on, the, the, good, the good news. After all, he has not come to condemn, but to save. Nicodemus is such an example, is he not? This grandiose of a man, this man who knew the scripture quite well, no doubt. Remember the words of our Lord to Nicodemus? Would you have wanted to be in Nicodemus's shoes? When our Lord gives you the, the admonitions and the rebuke that he gave to Nicodemus, you being an, a teacher of Israel, don't understand these things, Nicodemus? Nicodemus, don't you see that you are blind? You are ignorant, all that knowledge, and you're ignorant to the spiritual truths. And you, Nicodemus, are the, are the president of the Jerusalem School of Theology, and you don't know the truths. You, you know the Old Testament, but you don't know how it relates to true salvation and the Messiah to come. Although the exchange between the Lord and Nicodemus 
is direct. If you examine the exchange, there's nothing that Jesus says in that exchange to Nicodemus, who in that state, when he was before the Lord and he came to him by night, in that state he was still under the wrath of God, an enemy of God. There's nothing in the words of our Lord that that seem to have an absolute finality about them. He's not sealing the fate of Nicodemus in that moment. You read the text and you think, Nicodemus, you can turn his time, trust in Christ. You can, you can still turn to him. Another example is probably the invalid man of 38 years in John chapter 5. So joyful, so happy to have been recovered. So happy that Jesus came and visited him that day. Many sick in the, in the pool of Bethesda, but Jesus makes a beeline straight to the man who was invalid for 38 years. So happy that he was made well, but he had zero regard for Jesus. No regard at all. In fact, a little bit later on, he'll rat Jesus out to the religious Jewish authorities. At first, he says, I don't know who he is. But when he recognized who Jesus was, what's the first thing he does? He goes and tells him, I know who it was that made me well on the Sabbath day. It was him. And Jesus knew this. Jesus knew the heart of man. He didn't need to be told what is in man. He knew what is in the heart of man, John 2, 25. But even by knowing these things, when Jesus has an encounter with this man that he had healed, the last words he says, so you have been made well, now sin no more. There's hope in those words. He's not sealing the fate of that man. What happened to that man? Did he end up trusting? I don't know. Nicodemus, I feel that he has. Scripture tells us a little bit more about Nicodemus. But in both instances, there's a glimmer of hope in both of what Jesus had to say. And there are other examples, but I think you get what I'm getting at. However, there are times in Scripture when we see that the words of our Lord are final, where he indeed seals the fate of those who stand before him. Times where to take the words from 2 Chronicles 36, where there is no more remedy. When God speaks whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament through his son, Jesus Christ, and reveals not only the state of the heart of the person or the persons who stand before him, but the final outcome as well. And in those words, words, there is no glimmer of hope. No warning, no admonitions, no pleading to turn and no longer continue in that path. A sense of finality and only certain impending doom to come. We get to see things in those passages from the, from the view of the decree of God. Don't know about you, but they're pretty scary passages to come across. An example in the Old Testament is when the people of Judah finally, fully and finally break covenant with Yahweh and he gives them over to judgment and there's nothing they can do about it and we see in the prophets that the Lord says that's it I'm going to I'm going to bring a a nation from outside of Judah and they're going to conquer and they're going to punish and they're going to take over the land and the people will pray but I will not listen they will cry out with loud voices but I will close my ears to them it's it's final or or something an example in the in the New Testament like in John chapter 8 Possibly here in Jerusalem it takes place. And only a few months earlier, possibly to the same people that are before the Lord in John chapter 10. It says of Christ, so he said to them again, I, I'm going away and you will seek me. Listen to this. And you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. There's no hope in those words. You will die in your sin. And where I am going, you cannot come. You see, there are times where our Lord peers into the soul of a man and reveals the final state of that soul. That they will perish in their sins. I see the same here in John chapter 10. 
but you do not believe, Jesus says, because you are not among my sheep. But brother, you might say, why are you sealing the fate of these people? They may not be among the sheep right now, but who's to say that by the end of their lives they don't become part of the sheep of God? No. No, that's not actually possible. I said in previous sermon that the way, the way that our Lord uses the designation sheep in John chapter 10, he doesn't speak a sheep in the temporal. He's not speaking of the sheep who have become sheep. There's none, none of that language. It is they are sheep in the eternal when he speaks about, about sheep, he's speaking about sheep of election. In this chapter, they are called sheep even before they're saved. Look at verse 16. I have, that word have is in the present. Jesus is before the people of Jerusalem. And, and, and the, 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 the Jewish religious leaders, he's yet to be crucified. I have other sheep in the present, other sheep that are not of this fold. Speaking about the Gentiles, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. The gospel hadn't reached the Gentile world. But even before faith, they are called his sheep. Why? Because they are sheep of election. Lost sheep, yes, but he has come to seek and save that which was. Luke 19. The men before our Lord are not his sheep. And they never will be his sheep. You either have sheep DNA or you're a goat. Now, the judgment that will come upon such is due to the sin they've committed against a good and holy God. And their rejection of Christ is willful. Their unbelief of Christ is willful. It makes them culpable. It makes them responsible. Sinners are responsible for their unrighteousness, for their sin. Beloved, listen to me and listen to me. Good. No one is forced to sin. No, no man is forced to sin. In fact, in John chapter 3, and I've mentioned it before, it makes it very clear. Listen to what is written there in John chapter 3 from verse 19. And this is judgment. The light has come into the world and the people, hear this, loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things, hear this, hates the light. Love the darkness, hate the light. And does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. Love the darkness, hate the light. These are products of the will of man. The disposition of the heart of man. They have chosen, man has chosen, sinful man has chosen what to love and what to hate. And all will be judged for it. And man is responsible for those decisions, for the manifestations of the sinful nature. This is the testimony of Scripture. God is not to blame, blame for their plight. Sinful man is. for this man who is in sin to look upon the son of God the good shepherd in faith and to recognize the absolute danger and the peril that that one is in and their absolute need and desperate need for forgiveness because as it stands by nature they are under the wrath of God under the judgment of God for the soul that sins shall shall die the wages of sin is is death God cannot look upon sin with a smile on his face. A good, just God has to recompense every single bit of unrighteousness in his universe. 
And for a man like that, for a woman like that, and that is all of us before, every one of us was born in that, in that state. To finally come and to, to recognize our need for the Savior and to, to actually have a faith, to trust in Him for the forgiveness of our sins. As I said last week, something needs to happen and it's nothing less than the God of the universe needs to move. The same God that spoke light in the darkness. He needs to move. God needs to move. No one comes unto me unless the Father draws them unto me. John chapter 6 verse 44. And, and, and who are the ones the Father draws that Jesus is, is teaching? He taught this back in John chapter 6 to the Galileans. And who are the ones that the Father is drawing unto the Son? Teaching the heart and breaking the, 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 the effects of the sinful nature and the rebellious heart and the, and the willful unbelief. Who are the ones that the Father draws unto the Son? Only those, only those that in love he has given to his son. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. The sheep of his election. The sheep that Christ died for. The lost sheep that Christ will seek and will save. God moves and draws these sheep to Christ by his grace and through Faith is the sheep who will believe. It is only the sheep who will believe. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. It puts God in control and it strips man completely of his pride, doesn't it? It's, it's a sobering reality. But if right now, beloved, if right now you believe, if you have by the grace of God, not on your own merit or your own work, but purely by the grace of God, come to truly trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, for the reconciliation with a God, a good and holy God that was, that, that was angry at you because of your sins. not because you figured it out. It's not because I was smart enough or I worked it out or I had the Bible in my hand and I put two, to two, two and two together. It wasn't that at all. It's because before you were born, Christian, before you were born, before you had done anything good or evil, in love, you are predestined and chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1. That he would be your good shepherd and that you would be his sheep. Yes, you were enemies with God. The scripture is very clear. We have to make that point. That before the time of salvation, yes, even the sheep of election were in enmity with God. But the day that you are vitally united to Christ by His grace and through faith, it wasn't a work of your own doing, but it was the eternal fate that was predestined in God before you ever existed. You came to faith, Christian, because, because you were His sheep. Now I want you to realize the words that the Lord says here. Because you do not believe, sorry, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. The order is very, very important. The order is incredibly important. Because sometimes we hear, God forbid, we even say the reverse. Sometimes we say, you are not or I am not among the sheep because I don't believe or because you don't believe. So think about that. Jesus is saying, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. The reverse of that may sound on the money. You are not among my sheep because you do not believe. That's a massive doozy. It's a big difference between the two statements. One really does dishonor the Lord if you 
Look at it, Koyoi. You see, one is a foundational truth, and from that foundational truth, the other rise. The other rises from it. One is a statement of fact, and the other is a manifestation or the evidence of that fact. It's not that you become sheep because you believe. You believe because you are among his sheep. The eternal decree of God is in view. And beloved, there is a lot to be thankful for. Many at this point are offended at these words. I said it last week and I said I'm going to address it. I will briefly. Well, that's not fair, they may say. This would make God choose some and and, and not others. What sort of God is that? Is the words that you might hear. Is God a God who chooses some and doesn't choose others? Well, he chose Israel. And he didn't choose the nations. Some would rather place the choice in the hands of man and not in the hands of a sovereign good God. To entertain a foolish thought, let's go down that path. Where would that lead? Beloved, what is the alternative to God being sovereign in his election? Let me tell you something, beloved. Christ has already said that he has laid down his life for his sheep. His his sacrifice was a particular sacrifice. When he came down for the eternal son of God, when he came down from heaven and born of a woman, born under the law to live in perfect obedience to, to the father as a man. And then willingly lay down his life, as we heard in verses uh, 17 and 18, lay down his life for his sheep. He did it, beloved, for a particular people. His blood was shed for a particular people. He did not hang upon the cross thinking, I'm going to die for humanity. I hope someone will believe. He did it for his sheep. He did it. For his sheep. His sacrifice was efficacious because he died, died on the cross for his sheep. For his sheep. What's the alternative or, or to, to, to that? That man chooses, that man is the one who, who cuts the ground to faith? Beloved, our understanding of, of, of the total depravity that is taught in Scripture. Your understanding, my understanding of total depravity that is taught in Scripture. If it wasn't God who elected, if it wasn't in the very decree of God before the foundation of the world to elect some as a love gift to His Son, Jesus Christ, then let me ask you, who would be saved? No one is righteous. No one seeks after God. No, not One, what's the alternative? None would be saved. That's speaking foolishly because God doesn't work in alternative. God's ways are good in everything. The doctrine is offensive, beloved, because it takes man off his high horse and places the triune God upon his supremely authoritative sovereign throne where he belongs whether we like it or not that's where he belongs and that's where he is the complete and total sovereign of the universe the true truths run side by side and they are difficult to in our minds to fully understand but the scripture speaks of both those who stand before the Lord are indeed not, Jesus declares, you, are, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. That means they never were and never will be. But when judgment comes, God is a good judge. He's a righteous judge. He sits on the throne of righteousness and justice. And the recompense that he pours out will not be one that is unfair, although man may see it that way. 
that it is completely just. Because man is responsible for their own sin. It's sin, as I said, that is committed. It's righteousness, unrighteousness. And it's not as though man does not know that he is offending a good and holy God. He knows that there's a suppression of the knowledge of truth in unrighteousness. The Lord has given conscience to mankind to know when he violates that conscience, there is a point where he can violate and violate and violate and violate and then sear the conscience. The Bible speaks about that, but it is that that man or that woman is culpable of his or her sins. So God is just in pouring out his judgment upon even the reprobate. He will be just in pouring out his judgment and his wrath upon us if it were not for the grace of God in Christ Jesus and his awesome elective purposes that began before you and I were even even born. I want to I move on because I really want to get through verse 27 and we haven't even begun verse 27. So I, won't, I won't keep you too long. But let me give you a couple of verses that speaks about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man because the scripture is full of these. But these two verses really make it clear because in the, in the verse, in the one verse, you see both elements side by side and God is unapologetic. His word is true. His doctrine is true and it does glorify him. And I don't believe any Christian should shy back from anything the, Christian te- the, 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 the word teaches. But it ought not to make us proud It ought not to make us stand on a pedestal, but rather humble us before him in worship to recognize that could be me. Why? We ask sometimes, why me? Why me? And I've said many times from the pulpit, don't ask that question. Rather than asking why me and directing the attention at yourself, look at the great God and say, look how great you are. Because it's not because of who you are that you've been elected, but because of his goodness and his grace. So let me give you two verses. The first one is in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. These are two verses that you probably well know. Let me read them for you. Peter speaking to the Jews there in Jerusalem uh, on the day of Pentecost, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, a man attested to you by God and mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in the midst, in your midst, as you yourselves know. Now hear this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see how we got that? Those two truths running side by side, that the definite plan, the foreknowledge of God, on the one hand, no one can thwart his plan, it's eternal, and also the fact that the ones who accomplished the eternal decree of God are sinful men, and they will be judged accordingly. And the other one I want to give you is Luke. Luke chapter 22, verse 22. Jesus speaking about the upcoming, his upcoming crucifixion. He says, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Determined by whom? By God. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. So nothing that the, the Son has done has been on a divine calendar. The, the Father has, has, has ordained every moment, every word. And Jesus says, I only say what I only speak and, and, and say what I have been commanded to do. I do nothing apart from the will of the Father. So he says here, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. That's on the one side. But woe to the man whom he is betrayed. In whom, by whom he is betrayed. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. Was it decreed that Judas would betray Jesus? Will Judas Judas be punished because he betrayed Jesus? Is God just? Yeah. Let's move on to verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice. I'm going to be very brief with those words because if you remember back in the early verses of this chapter, Jesus also said that one of the benefits of him coming and and rescuing his sheep from the sheep fold is that he'll call his sheep by their name. They'll hear his voice and they'll follow after him. The fact of the matter is his sheep hear his voice because he gives them ears to hear. You, You know that. He gives them ears to hear and eyes to see because spiritually they are blind, spiritually they're blind and and deaf. He gives them ears to hear and to recognize the voice of the shepherd and to be able to follow after the shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and I know them, the Lord says. 
Beloved, how important is it that we understand the veracity of these words in light of what has already been spoken? That the sheep are known to the shepherd. We often say that we know Christ. And that's true. We can say that. It's okay. As long as we recognize that we know him only because he first knew us. We've just established our election is not random, it's not happenstance, it's rooted, not rooted in time, but it's rooted in the eternal decree of God. That the same decree, beloved, that has elected the saints is the same decree that saves the saints in real time. And that salvation comes through the good shepherd seeking the lost sheep. Sheep pre-conversion do not know the shepherd, do they? They don't recognize his voice, do they? So it was up to the sheep to search out the shepherd, which is absurd even as a notion if you think about it in animal husbandry. But if it's up to the sheep to search out the shepherd, how will they go, do you think? They'll never find him. It was up to you or I to scramble through the lies and the deceit of this world, trying to find truth in a sin-darkened world. We will never find. You and I would be eternally lost if it was in our hands to search out the Good Shepherd. Because we don't, in the sinful state, we don't have spiritual eyes to see or spiritual ears to hear. We will stumble and we will stagger until we die in our sins. You know why? Because we wouldn't know what to look for. Are you glad that he does know what to look for? You see, we, we didn't know the shepherd, but he knew us. And he's the one who pursues his sheep. I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. He knows what he's looking for. Because what he is looking for is a prized possession. It is the ones that the Father has given him. All that the Father has given me will come to me. It is the ones that the Father has elected for him as a, a love gift. And Jesus loves the Father. The Father is the object of his love. And the Father says, I'm going to give you a gift. Jesus knows what he's looking for. The names of his sheep are written on his hearts, beloved. In love, he pursues them. He rescues them and he gives them life. They didn't recognize who he was. But he always knew who his own were. He always knew his own. You see, the ultimate question is not whether you know Christ, but does Christ know you? 2 Timothy 2.19 reads this way, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. He's always known who are His. From before the foundation of the world, He's known who is His. He's known who are His before you knew you were His. Your knowledge of him is conceived in time. His knowledge of you is rooted in eternity. He seeks his own because he knows them. Don't let that go over your head. Don't let that truth go over your head. He seeks his sheep that he knows. And he seeks them while they are yet not known. Or while they are yet not knowing of him. Does that make sense? That's bad grammar. While they did not know him. Let's go with. Do you see the significance of those words, beloved? They're so impactful. They're so impactful. That there's a saviour who's done all the work. He's known us before we were even born. And he pursued us. And pursued us. And he was the one who saved us and rescued us. And gave us life. You know, these words are impactful when we go to the verse that you've heard so often spoken of here from this pulpit in Matthew chapter 7. You know the one Lord, Lord. On that day, Jesus says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works or wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, 
The, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Not you never knew me. Isn't that interesting? I never knew you. Why would he say that? Why would he say to those who, who, who proclaim that they know the Lord and come and say, Lord, Lord, what are you doing? We, we're yours. Like we know your name. You, we did all these things in your name. We proclaimed. We gave tracts. We preached sermons. We told our friends, our neighbors about you. We read our Bible every day. Lord, Lord, we, we, we used your name. Lord, we, we belong to you. He says, I, I, never, I, never, I never knew you. Why would he say that? Why, why would he say, but you didn't know me? I'll tell you why. Because if Jesus never knew you, then Jesus didn't pursue them. That means they weren't given to him by the Father. He didn't pursue them. He didn't save them. He didn't bring them unto himself. If I never pursued you, if I never got, never went after you as the good shepherd and sought after you while you were lost, then you cannot be known to me. The thing that you know or the, 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 the thing in your mind or the thought that you know me is superficial. You may know of me, but you cannot know me because no one knows me unless I have known them first. So by Jesus saying, I never knew you, it's saying it is impossible for you to know me because apart from me knowing you, you can never know me. You can never know me. Then whatever knowledge they have is superficial. Jesus has already said, though, that it is a reciprocating knowledge, that the fact that he knows his own then relates to as a consequence or as a manifestation of that knowledge of Christ to his, to his sheep. And he, he opens their eyes and he gives them eyes and ears and life to now know him. Because that's what he says in verse chapter 14. He says, I know my own and my own know me. You remember when we went through that passage? That word know is not simply just a familiarity. I pause because I can start it with that familiarity. But it's more a, a deep, intimate love, hearty knowledge that he has with his sheep and his ha- sheep have for him. He knows his sheep and his sheep know him and now they love him. It, it's an intimate knowledge. That no word, no, you remember I said, is the, is the same word that's used of a husband knowing his wife and the wife knowing her, her husband. It's deeper than just my mind knows. There's a, there's a heart connection. They're able to recognize his voice, Jesus says. And they follow his footsteps. They recognize his light. And they walk after him. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. The evidence of being known by Christ, the evidence of the sheep knowing Christ, is they hear his voice, and they follow after him. Remember those who said, Lord, Lord, and Jesus says, apart from me, I, I, I never knew you. Do you remember what he says after that? You workers of iniquity or workers of lawlessness. If his sheep who know him, who he knows and know him, by virtue of being his sheep, he gives them the eyes and the, the ears and the ability to follow after him. And he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows after me will not walk in darkness, but in the light will have the light of life. Than those that Jesus says, I never knew you who are workers of iniquity, workers of lawlessness, workers of darkness. How can they know Christ when he is the light of the world? How can they know Jesus when he is the, the light of the world and those who walk after him are no longer in the darkness, but they see things for what they are. They recognize who they are in Christ. They're on their own. They're wretched sinners, worthy of judgment. Worthy, not worthy of the grace of God, but in his light as all things are made clear. Jesus says to these men, your workers of iniquity, in other words, you, you remain in darkness. And that's what he's saying to the Jews that stand before him even now. By the virtue of the fact they are not his sheep, they don't recognize his voice, they, he does not know them intimately, salvifically, and therefore they do not follow after him. They remain in darkness thinking 
thinking that they are in that temple celebrating because they are truly the people of God and yet they are in darkness. That festival is also known to be a festival of lights, lights all over the place, and yet the hearts are so darkened by sin they are unable to see the state of their own soul. They have the oracles of God, they have the law of Moses, they have the Jewish feasts and the festivals. They do all the prescribed sacrifices, but they're not walking in light. Beloved, those who know Christ, or rather are known by him, have an intimate love relationship with him. And the fervency and the meticulousness that the Jews were practicing, all the oracles and the rites and the rituals and so forth, were not depicting of those who love God, but rather love religion. It's the religion that they were in love with. The mechanical turnings of rules and precepts. Be careful. Be careful. Because we could do the same. We, we, could, we could be in love with religion, with our knowledge, with our understanding with the things that we know or the practices of the people we hang around with. Be careful. The Lord despises that sort of practice. In fact, if you remember the old covenant, when the Lord speaks to the old covenant people through the prophets, he says to them, stop offering those sacrifices. I don't want them. He says, enough with the feasts and the festivals. I don't want your incense. They're an abomination in my eyes. But Lord, but Lord, you said you want them. You commanded these people to do them. Yes, but he commanded first that they love him with all his hearts, their hearts, souls, and their minds. In Joshua 22, he writes, to love God. He, 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 he um, admonishes the people to love God and to walk in His ways. To love God and to walk in His ways. The, the love that one, the sheep have for the shepherd because, he's been, because the sheep have been forgiven of their sins. The load of the, the judgment of God has been taken. It's been borne upon the cross because the good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep so that his sheep would have life, eternal life. That's next time. But, but the love that the sheep have towards this good shepherd is what compels them to, to do what he commands. If you love me, you will obey my commands. Love for God is the root, beloved. The obedience is the fruit. Let me end with these things. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Beloved, I, it is so obvious to us, but sometimes we miss it. That when Jesus says that my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, they're not following a system. They're not following a, a system of rules. They're not f simply following stipulations found in a book. They're not following men who stand behind pulpits. They're not following men who stand behind computer screens. They're not following those who write these beautiful books that we can benefit from, theological treatises. They're not following. You're following a person. You're following Jesus. You're following the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ. Never, ever, never, ever let that escape you. That the Christian faith is to follow a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. One who breathes, one who speaks, one who, one who, who has in the very existence, one who, who, who speaks and you hear His voice, the one who's giving you His word, beloved brothers and sisters. We follow Christ. Sometimes we can speak and we speak so 
abstractly about the things we believe. We're talking about Christ. You know why his word is precious? Because it comes out of his mouth. It comes out of his mouth. His word is precious. His commands are precious. Why? Why are his commands not burdensome? Because we love him. Because we love him. Beloved, why? How can it be that our life is not so precious? Because the life he gives us is more precious. It's better. We follow Christ. Can we say that we truly know him? Can we say that I know Christ? I hear his voice. Can I say that I'm known by him and he's made himself known to me? What are my prayers like? How do I pray? Do I, do I pray truly as though I'm, I'm before Jesus Christ who hears me, who knows me, who knows my heart? Is there a true, vibrant relationship with a person? Or do I have a relationship with a, a thing, a system, some words, some doctrines, some principles? How vibrant is our faith? And this Jesus says that his sheep follow after him. He can be trusted. He knows the way to heaven. He's been there. You don't know. You don't know the way. I don't know the way. He does. Where he is going, we are to follow. You remember the example I gave earlier, and I'll end with this. The example I gave earlier when Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, and I said, this is an example of, um, of, of when he speaks and peers in, into the soul and reveals the very state of one's soul. And, I, and I, back then, in John chapter 7, I actually reiterated again in John chapter 8, where Jesus says, where I am going, you will seek after me, but you will die in your sins, for where I am going, you cannot come. You cannot come? You remember that? They cannot come? Now listen to way, the way Jesus speaks when he speaks to his sheep. Listen to what Jesus says to his sheep. Because, because those who cannot come, if they're not his sheep, they may try after a week or a month or a year or even a decade, but they will never be able to follow after him because, because they don't belong to him. But listen to how Jesus speaks to those who do belong to him in John chapter 13, and it crosses over into John chapter 14. Let me just read it to you and I'll end with this. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me. Oh, that's similar to what he said to the, to the Jews who are not believers. But I've missed the word. And Jesus said to him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow afterwards, he says. And a little later, in the same conversation with the disciples in the upper room discourse, in the same conversation, he says, and you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And then Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You don't need to know the way. You need to know the Savior. You need to know the Good Shepherd. You need to know the one who says, I am the way. Beloved brothers and sisters, Fix your eyes upon this Jesus. Receive from his word. Commune with him. Hear his voice. Walk in his ways. Cultivate a love for him. Follow after this Jesus. How do I know what tomorrow brings? How do I know the health of my family next week? 
How do I know if I'm still going to have a job next week or next month or next year? My children are growing up and they're getting licenses and beginning to drive cars. How do I know that they're going to remain safe? How do I know the state of my husband next week or next month or next year or my wife? How do I, I You're not expected to know. But life goes on. And it goes on and the wheels keep turning. How do I know what direction to take? And Jesus says, my sheep follow after me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know, he makes the infinitely complex so simple. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. From beginning to end, Christ is everything.